tend to be individualistic. I mean, people around the world do a whole lot better on average with community than we do. Uh, we, we tend to be consumeristic. And honestly, we just, we're just a little spoiled. And, and so sometimes the idea of, you know, corporate, the, the, the church, can be difficult for us. And remember, you know, church is a whole lot more uh, than, than coming to a sermon or a service or whatever. You know, we did a series a few years ago and have the shirts, uh, you know, don't just go to church, be the church. And, and really, that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, minus Mother's Day. You know, as we've covered most of the first couple of chapters of the book of Ephesians, with the the church has kind of been implied in there several times. Now, in the last four verses of chapter 2, Paul's going to, going to explicitly talk about the church. And we're going to take some time to, to unpack this. Really, in the last four verses of, of Ephesians 2, he gives three images of the church. The church uh, as kingdom, uh, the church as a family, and the church as a temple. And so, with the temple, he comes at it from a couple different angles. One as you know, foundation of building blocks, the other as the dwelling place of God. So we're going to take four weeks and, and look at uh, those four things. And I, I want to help us to see, because I think this is so important in the United States of America today, and that is, what is the church? I think when you look at the weakness and problems of the church in the United States, there's different reasons for that. Uh, but Everything at its root is a belief issue. It's a, it's a theological issue. And we certainly have theological issues when it comes to the gospel. But I think that the average Christian in America doesn't really know what the Bible teaches about the church and what the church really is. And so what is the church? And of course, there's the universal church. There's local expressions of that. But look at how he describes the church here in Ephesians 2, uh, 19 through 22. He says, now therefore, and this connects back to what we uh, talked about uh, last week and really connects to the whole flow uh, of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you're no longer strangers and foreigners. We're not far off. Remember, we were brought near. We were reconciled through the blood of the cross, united together in the church. But now we're fellow citizens with the saints. We're citizens of God's kingdom. We're members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you're also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Think about that. In some sense, God dwells in his church. We're the body of Christ. But let me not get ahead of myself. So today we're going to focus on uh, verse 19 and talk about what it means to be citizens uh, of the kingdom of God. Now look at what he says again. He says, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with uh, the, the saints. Now, what does this mean? So uh, the, the, when he talks about strangers and foreigners together, 
It speaks of all those who are not citizens of God's kingdom. Now, the word stranger in Greek literally means, uh, this comes from Kenneth Weiss, uh, it's, it's a Greek word, xenos, and, and, and I learned something when I was studying this. You ever in, in, the, in the news and the media uh, over the last several months as the immigration, the refugee, refugee issue has been debated, you ever heard anybody toss, about, toss around the word xenophobe or xenophobic? I didn't know exactly what it meant. I kind of had an idea from context, but literally the, the word means fear of strangers, and it comes from this Greek word, xenos. And, and so the word stranger is xenos, an alien. The word speaks of that which is of a different quality or nature than something else, thus alien to it. Sinners are aliens to the kingdom of God, having a totally depraved nature that makes them different and different in a hostile sense. And that's what we learn in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. The word foreigners uh, means it speaks of one who has a home alongside of someone else. It is used here of one who comes from another country or city and settles in another, but does not rank as an actual citizen. But when it talks about fellow citizens, it literally means members of a city or a state, or in this context, spiritually, it speaks of belonging together to God's kingdom. So what, what this is saying, you know, the, therefore, he's connecting to what he said before. He's summarizing uh, everything that he said here in chapter 2. We were, remember, we were separated from God, alienated because of our sin. But then we're reconciled through the cross. Now we're united together in the body of Christ, in the church, as citizens of the kingdom of God. And, and so that's the big idea that we're looking at today. Now, this is how we're going to do that. We're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about the meaning of the kingdom, the members of the kingdom, and the message of the kingdom. Now, the first point is we talk about the meaning of the kingdom. This is review. I've taught this before. We did a message about the kingdom during the This Is Us series last year. I'm going to hit this quickly. The second part, the members of the kingdom, it's new teaching, but I'm going to hit it quickly too. And we're going to try to zero in on the mission of the kingdom and how that relates to the mission of the church, what it means for us as the church to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. But uh, to be able to do that, I think we have to understand what kingdom is. So let's just review quickly. When the Bible talks about uh, kingdom, first of all, there's the kingdom manifested. There's four manifestations of the kingdom of God. First of all, you can't have a king, kingdom without a king. And so the Bible teaches us that God is king, is ruler, is sovereign over all. Jesus Christ is king of kings. And he's Lord of lords. So Jesus is our king. So when Jesus left heaven to, and, and came to earth in the incarnation the first time, the kingdom of God was present on the earth. And so there's the past aspect of the kingdom of God when Jesus came the first time. There's the future aspect of the kingdom of God. When Jesus returns, he's literally going to set up his kingdom on the earth with Jerusalem being the capital city, rule and reign for a thousand years. So the kingdom is going to be manifested in its fullness and its power on the earth as Jesus rules and reigns. And, but then it's important for us also to recognize and remember that right now in the present, 
The kingdom of God is in our hearts as Jesus rules and reigns over all, but as he rules and reigns over us, particularly as believers, because when we became a Christian, Jesus became our God, our Lord, and our King. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, that, that's how it's manifested. Now, when we're talking about the, the, the definition or the meaning of the kingdom of God, there's two things. First of all, it's God's reign. It, it, not rain like it rains every Sunday in East Tennessee practically now, but R-E-I-G-N, like a king rules, a king reigns. Uh, uh, the, the reign of God, it, it's, it's a, it refers to a ruler's sphere of authority. Charles Colson writes that the kingdom of God is a rule, not a realm. It's the declaration of God's absolute sovereignty of his total order of life in this world and in the next. <clears throat> so when we're, when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about that God has, is, in, is in charge of, that God has a plan for, a way that things are supposed to work in every realm of life in society. Not, not just within the church, not just in, quote, spiritual things. That God's in control of all things and, and has a plan uh, for all things. So we're talking about the reign of God. Uh, the other word would be restoration. We're talking about God's restoration of us as individuals and the restoration of the created world. Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears put it this way. He says, at its simplest, the kingdom of God is the result of God's mission to rescue and renew his sin-marred creation. The kingdom of God is about Jesus, our king, establishing his rule and reign over all creation, defeating the human and angelic evil powers, bringing order to all, enacting justice, and being worshipped as Lord. So let's put this together simply then. Okay, so when we're talking about kingdom, just remember six words. King, past, present, future, rule, reign. That, that's the kingdom of God in a nutshell. Remember that? King, past, present, future, rule, reign. So that's, that's the meaning of the kingdom. That, that he, if, if, and if you just remember one thing, remember he's king, he's reigning, and he's working to restore this world to what he originally created it to be. That, that's kind of the bottom line. He's manifesting his kingdom. Now, second, let's think about the members of the kingdom. Because what's it say in verse 19? We're uh, citizens with the saints, with the idea of citizens being implying that we're citizens in the kingdom of God. So to put this in, in one statement, the church is those who through the cross have been reconciled to the Father, been made alive in Christ, and are indwelled by the Spirit. These people are united together in one body as one new humanity and are citizens of God's kingdom. That's Ephesians chapter 2 and two sentences. That's who we are as Christians. Listen, the church is more than a gathering. The church is certainly not just a building. The church is the body of Christ, one new humanity, Jews and Gentiles, those who have been reconciled to the Father, made alive in Christ, indwelled by the Spirit. That's what it means to be a part of the church. It's a whole lot more than showing up at a service, singing a couple of songs, listening to a sermon, and maybe giving a little bit of money, maybe serving in the church. That's what it means. We are the church. 
Now, so as the church, though, we're citizens of God's kingdom. So God's kingdom, past, present, and future, it's his rule and reign. It's his overarching sovereign control and power. But the church is the vehicle in this age through which God is manifesting his kingdom. Does that make sense? That's kind of how the church and the kingdom connect together. So if we're citizens of God's kingdom, what are some of the characteristics of of being a citizen of the kingdom. I'm going to hit these quickly uh, as well. First of all, we are supernaturalized. Now, I ripped this phrase off from somebody. I love the phrase. I can't give them credit because I don't remember who it is, but uh, we're supernaturalized. Like, if you're from another country and you come into the United States to, to, to become a citizen, we call them being naturalized. Well, to become a citizen of God's kingdom, you have to be supernaturalized. You have to be born again, Jesus told Nicodemus, to see and to enter the kingdom of heaven. There has to be a fundamental change that takes place within us. Why? We're aliens and strangers because of sin. We belong to the kingdom of darkness, so we have to be translated into the kingdom of the Son of God through his supernatural, saving, regenerating transforming power as we're born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, um, you know, you can't come into the kingdom of God on your own. You only belong to the kingdom of God through the saving power of Jesus Christ. But this also means then, if you're saved, we have a new ruler as Jesus is our king. So if you're a Christian, you're under new ownership, so to speak. Your life is not your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to Jesus. And so that means you're living for him and his glory. means we can't do whatever we want to do. We're under his authority. I mean, the Bible tells us that if we're going to be saved, we have to confess Jesus is Lord out of the faith that he gives us in our hearts. And Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, how do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? So if you're a Christian as a member of his kingdom, you're obligated to follow his rules, his laws, to obey him. And when we disobey, we have to confess and repent. And that's just foundational to living the Christian life. Jesus is our king. And so you can't say, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. I prayed a prayer. I've been forgiven without Jesus being your Lord and God and king. Have you truly submitted to him? So this means then that we have a new ultimate allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. I'm thankful to be a Tennessean, thankful uh, to be an American, but both of those are subservient to being a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's our ultimate allegiance if we're in Christ in his church. We have a new purpose which is glorifying God through the building of his kingdom, the advancement of his kingdom. That's now the purpose of our lives. Not to build our own lives, not to build our own little empires, but to live for that which will last forever, to live for that which is eternal, to live for the kingdom of God. 
So what are we doing in our lives for Jesus that's building, advancing his kingdom that's going to last forever? And then ultimately, we have a new destination as citizens of the kingdom of God. Philippians 3.20, Paul wrote, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just strangers and pilgrims passing through here, the Bible tells us. Our home is in heaven. That's our ultimate destination where the kingdom of God is going to be expressed eternally. That's where we belong. All right, so we've got king, past, present, future, reign, restoration. As members of the kingdom, we're supernaturalized. Jesus is our king. Our ultimate allegiance is to his kingdom. We're called to build his kingdom. And our final destination is in the heavenly kingdom. So that, that's the meaning of the kingdom. That's the members of the kingdom. Now, let's zero in. Like I said, I want to move through that quickly to talk about the mission of the kingdom. And so what, what I'm talking about is this, these questions. How are the church and kingdom related? What's the mission of the church in light of the mission of the kingdom? And what does this mean to my life? Now, um, this, like I said, I kind of had to lay a foundation, kind of review. Uh, you know, hopefully, uh, this may seem a little weighty so far. Now we're going to get real practical, okay? So the, the, the mission of the kingdom, the, the mission of the church. So we have to understand the church is not the kingdom. And, and we also have to understand from what I said, if the church is past, present, and future, the kingdom is here and not yet at the same time. The kingdom's here, but it's not fully here. It's not fully manifested. Uh, God has chosen so that more people could be saved to not instantaneously defeat and eradicate evil. That's going to happen later. So understand there's a battle going on between the kingdom of God and, and the forces uh, of, of darkness. So the kingdom is within us. The kingdom is here but the kingdom is not fully realized. And so what that means practically as we in the church live as citizens of the kingdom is we can't turn this world. Some people in the church have entered into this air. We can't turn the world into some kind of utopia until Jesus comes back. But people in the church have entered into error, fallen in the ditch, so to speak, on the other side of the road, too, saying, we can't make a difference at all. We just need to hang on until Jesus comes back. And both of those things are wrong. We can't turn the world into utopia, but we can make a difference right now. Driscoll and Brashears write, This tension of the kingdom being already present in the church, but not yet fully unveiled until the return of Jesus, allows us to labor in hope until he returns by working on both the spiritual and physical needs of people, caring for the whole person, including their food, water, shelter, education, and clothing. That's what it means to live the kingdom as the church. I'll share a quote with you I've shared before, but it's so powerful. Martin Luther King Jr., in uh, his classic work, uh, A Letter from a Birmingham Jail, wrote this. He said, quote, there was a time when the church was very powerful. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat 
that transform the mores, which means the customs or beliefs or values of society. That's what God is calling the church to be today. I believe that's the hope of our nation. That's what it means to live as citizens of kingdom, God's kingdom in the church. So what does this look like? How do we accomplish this mission? How do we live this way? Well, I want to give you three ideas here. First of all, the church does battle against the kingdom of darkness. The church does battle against the kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We're in a war. We're in a war. Now, most American Christians either don't realize that or don't want to hear that, but our brothers and sisters in the church around the world don't have any doubt or question or argument with that statement. Because so many of our brothers and sisters around the world are being overtly persecuted. Listen, when we get to the end of Ephesians chapter 6 and we talk about spiritual warfare, we're going to see that one of the images of the church in the Bible is an army. Why? Because we're in a war. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. We're in a war. Now, you know, it gets manifested in the earth in different ways. I think the, you know, the, the biggest thing that Satan uses in the United States is secular humanism. The biggest thing he's using around the world right now, in my opinion, is Islam. But we're in a war, and it's ultimately not a physical war. It's a spiritual war. Do you understand that Satan came to steal, to kill, and to destroy? One of the things one of the speakers of the crusade this past week pointed out, based on that verse, is God has a plan, a purpose, and a blueprint for your life, but Satan has a plan, a purpose, and a blueprint for your life too. Which one are we going to live according to? Satan wants to take you to hell, and if he can't do that, he wants to ruin your witness. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your kids. He wants to destroy your family. And as Christians, a lot of times, we are just oblivious to this. But we have a king who's greater than our enemy. And as long as we're in submission to him and filled with the Spirit and wearing the armor of God, Satan can't do anything to us unless we give him the opening in our lives. We're in a war, though. We're doing battle against the kingdom of darkness. And we as the church need to take that seriously. Uh, pick up the weapons of light. Put on the armor of God. Be filled with the Spirit. Pray. Be serious about this thing. Uh, realizing we're in a battle. But a lot of you are just kind of floating along day to day. Just kind of doing your own thing. Oblivious to this. And that's where Satan wants you. We're in a battle. It's kingdom against kingdom. Charles Colson wrote a book called Kingdoms in Conflict. And, and that's the reality. And that's going to be the reality until Jesus returns. What's it going to take to wake us up? Is it going to take overt persecution like is going on? I like to say more about that. But I'm going to talk about that later uh, in, in, when we get to the next couple of verses. But is it going to take that? Smacking us in the face. 
before we really wake up to this fact. The church does battle against the kingdom of darkness. But second, what's the church do as citizens of God's kingdom? The church participates in God's rescue mission of the world through the gospel. You know, every time somebody gets saved, somebody gets baptized through the ministry of our church, that's what's happening. That's why we're here. Last Sunday in the second service, there were three ladies from Easter who are at the, the drug recovery house in, in, in White Pine uh, that uh, got baptized. And, and after the service, up, up on the stage, Judge Sloan took a picture with these three ladies and he was holding one of their, their babies. That's the kingdom. That's what we're talking about. Once again, Driscoll and Brashear is right. The kingdom message is that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Spiritual death, the rupture of relationship with God, can be healed through his atoning death alone. The internal destruction that sin has brought to our hearts can be renewed through the power of his resurrected life. The real enemy conquered by his victory is not political, but sin and the God of this world. Satan himself, along with the spiritual forces of of, of darkness. Jesus formed a new movement, the church, a redeemed people from every nationality and ethnicity who will come into the unity of the Spirit to participate in God's rescue mission to the whole world. As we serve people, as we meet human needs, ultimately as we proclaim the gospel as the church and individuals in our day-to-day lives and in the spheres in which God puts us, we are living the kingdom as God's rule and reign and righteousness and restoration is being spread from person to person, one life at a time. The battle's being won and the kingdom is being advanced. That's what we're talking about. If you would, watch this video clip. One morning I walked into a church, but it wasn't on a Sunday. I looked around and I saw the empty seats, the sun glistening through the dust in the air. At first I was distraught at the sight of the empty chairs, but then I was filled with joy. I realized that the people who were once in those chairs were now outside of the building, working at their jobs, serving in their communities, laughing with their co-workers and growing with their families. They had the opportunity to be the church, not just sit in it. When will we be like them? When will we see the opportunity given to us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, bringing hope into the world. Stained glass can't pray for the sick. These walls can't preach the gospel, but you can. The building you're sitting in is just a building. But if you trust in Jesus, then you are the church. Don't just go to church. Be the church. Live the kingdom. Participate in God's rescue mission to the entire world. Now, last 
picture. Last thing I want you to think about, and I've left myself a few minutes to camp out here intentionally. The church is to be a picture of the coming kingdom. The church is to be a picture of the coming kingdom. Now, let me, let me unpack this a little bit. When you think about the kingdom when Jesus comes back, the lion's going to lay down with the lamb. There's going to be peace. There's going to be healing. There's going to be unity. There's going to be worship. There's going to be joy. Uh, there's going to be restoration that takes place. Are we a picture of that right now? Here's what, here's what I believe. When, when you maybe invite somebody to church or share the gospel with somebody, one of the most common responses that you'll get is, I don't want to go to church. There's too many hypocrites there. And there's some truth in that. Now, the issue is not really Christians. The issue is Christ. But a couple of things I want you to think about. Here's the thing. If we're living the kingdom, we're picturing it for people, we're pointing people to Jesus. If we're not living the kingdom, if we're not pointing this for people, or not, not living this in front of people, we're pointing people away from Jesus. I mean, when people see hell in the church instead of heaven, why should we expect them to flock to it? If we're not any different, if we don't live like Jesus is our king, why should we expect them to follow him? But, there's another side to this that, that, that I want to get into, and I, and I want to share some examples with you to do two things. First of all, just to give some examples of what it looks like to live the kingdom. But, but second of all, I, I want to give these examples just as examples of what the church has really accomplished through the years. You see, because when people use that excuse as there's too many hypocrites in the church, I mean, there's no excuse for us acting like hypocrites, but none of us are perfect. And the good that the church has accomplished in living out the kingdom down through the centuries far outweighs the bad and is actually, if you know history, has transformed the world. And I want to give you some examples of that. Um, not all of these, but a lot of these come from this book by D. James Kennedy, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And, you know, this is something, I could probably do a whole message on this, so I got about 10 minutes, so, uh, but I, I want to just mention 10 categories and give you some details of how Jesus, through his church, in the advancement of the kingdom, has changed the world. And interesting, people talk about things like the Inquisition, Crusades, all those kind of things. Well, first of all, the Inquisition was more against evangelical Christians than by evangelical Christians. Obviously, the Crusades were wrong. But like you say, the, the positive evidence way outweighs the negative stuff. I mean, I mean, think about some things. Think about children and how the church has affected the world. Basically, before Jesus came, children had no rights. In the Roman Empire, they practiced something called paterfamilias. Basically, a child wasn't really alive until the father decided if it was going to live. Uh, two times, and we're fighting the battle again, but two times in the history of the church, the church has won the battle against abortion. In the ancient, of, in the ancient world, outside of Jews who believed that people were made in the image of God, abortion, infanticide, child sacrifice, and abandonment were very common. But the church 
has overcome those to some degree with a pro-life ethic, with legislation. Uh, Did you know that Constantine and Justinian, who were two Roman emperors who became Christians, passed legislation against uh, the abandonment of children, against infanticide, those kind of things. In the past, the church has established foundling homes, nursery homes, orphanages, and today has been on the leading edge of adoption in the world. Live the kingdom, change the world. Think about women. Sometimes people think women oppress Christians. Sometimes people, Christians oppress women. Uh, Sometimes like, you know, we'll get into this more later in Ephesians. We're complementarian in our theology. So we don't believe in, say, female pastors, for example. We believe men and women are equal, have different roles. And so sometimes people think Christians, uh, Christian men are bigoted against women. But think about what the church has done for women down through the centuries. Think about what I just said and realize that girls were more often killed than boys. Think about in, in, in the church, uh, through in the ancient world, they fought it in the Roman Empire. Missionaries had fought against that practice in places like China and India. And multitudes of little girls have been saved by the efforts of missionaries and by the Christian uh, church. Think about the, the, the sati practice in India, you know, where when, when a, a man died, his widow, either voluntarily or in some cases involuntarily, was burned on his funeral pyre. Uh, Uh, Through the efforts of the famous missionary William Carey, uh, that was abolished in India. India had a practice of young girls becoming temple prostitutes. And the famous missionary Amy Carmichael was able to get that uh, ended. Think about women's rights in countries with a Christian heritage versus countries with a Muslim heritage. Ladies, you want to go live in a Muslim country? Do you know that many Muslim men think that they have the right to do whatever they want with a non-Muslim woman sexually? Do you know there are cities in Europe that have a large Muslim population through immigration and refugees where it is not safe for women to walk the streets because of Muslim men? The church has made a difference in the lives of women. Think about slavery. When the slave trade was abolished in the British Empire, it came about through, I mean, the the one who's known is William Wilberforce, but he wasn't the only one. But they came out of a local church. And over decades of Christian witness, William Wilberforce was used in Parliament to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire. And you may say, well, I'm never going to be in Parliament or Congress or anything like that. But there was another man in his church by the name of Granville Sharp who uh, was used to get a a slave by the name of of Jonathan Strong freed the first case ever. Listen, if you make a difference for one, you're making a difference. Think about it. Think about Martin Luther King and how he was used in our country. Was he quoting Nietzsche? God is dead, so uh, we need racial equality. No, he was quoting the Bible. Think about who's on the forefront in so many cases and trying to abolish sex trafficking, uh, slavery around the world today. It's Christians. Think about charity. 
Do you know that historians say that before Jesus was born, that charity basically did not exist in the ancient world, but that it flourished through the efforts of the early church and began to take hold in the world. How did the early church grow so much in the face of persecution in the Roman Empire? A lot of it had to do with the way they loved people, the way they cared for people, the way they expressed charity, particularly when during the plagues in in, in Rome, when people would abandon their own families, and Christians, because they didn't fear death, would stay and take care of them. It's living the kingdom. Education for everyone. Do you realize that it was with the advent of Christianity that education for the masses came about? Primarily came out of the Protestant Reformation. In the dark ages, you know who kept uh, civilization going, kept learning alive? It was priests and monks. Think about today, how many languages are being codified, which means verbal language being put into written form. How many languages have been and are being translated through the work of Christian missionaries? Think about education in, in our country. In the United States of America, education was Christian and private for the first 217 years uh, of our history. Public education didn't begin until 1837, at least in a governmental uh, sense. Almost all of our universities that go back to the founding time, most of the first 123 universities and colleges found in the United States, they may not be this now, were Christian in their origin. Think about modern science. Did you know that modern science, you know, a lot of times science and religion are portrayed as being in conflict with one another. Modern science grew out of a Christian worldview out of the belief that there's an intelligent designer, so things are orderly and and measurable. And I don't have the time to get into this, but you can look it up. If you look at dozens of the major scientific disciplines, particularly those uh, that that were started a few hundred years ago, they were begun by Bible-believing Christians operating out of a Christian worldview. Really, logically, it doesn't even make a whole lot of sense to have science and believe in evolution because evolution says everything is chaotic and random as opposed to designed and orderly. Think about work. You ever heard of the Protestant work ethic? Came out of the Protestant Reformation. It's what our country's built on. You ever heard of capitalism? It came out of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, beyond what it accomplished spiritually in recovering the true gospel, literally transformed the world. And it's changing now in the 21st century. But literally, Western civilization as we've known it for the last four to 500 years was shaped by the Protestant Reformation. There are people who argue that really our country was shaped by the writings of John Calvin applied by our founding fathers. Think about healing the sick. Hospitals as we know them began under the influence of Christianity. In fact, at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, it was decreed that wherever there was a church started, there had to be a hospital started. Now, these hospitals for several hundred years, you wouldn't have wanted to have gone to one. They weren't very sanitary. 
But you know, when uh, that was improved and began to be corrected, it was when two Christian scientists, Louis Pasteur, who was in the area of bacteriology, and then another Christian, Joseph Lister, I'm assuming this is where the name Listerine comes from, he invented antiseptic surgery. Two Christians. Charles Rosenberg said of the development of hospitals in America that they were, quote, framed and motivated by the responsibilities of Christian stewardship. Modern nursing, Florence Nightingale. Now, she wasn't real orthodox in her beliefs, but what she did was motivated by her religion. You ever heard of the Red Cross? A man by the name of Henry do not started the Red Cross as a believer, he's also part of starting the, the uh, YMCA when it was actually a Christian organization and before it was just one of the worst songs that's ever uh, been uh, produced. The Red Cross. There's a reason he put a cross as the symbol of it. There's a reason Muslims also developed the Red Crescent because they didn't want anything to do with the cross because they understood the significance of it. The church has changed the world. Think about civilizing the uncivilized. And, and I wish I had more time to get into this. But there, there's a monk by the name of Telemachus who took a stand in the arena in Rome. And that's when the gladiatorial contests were ended. The barbarians. We don't fear barbarians today. Why? Because they were one to Christ back in the dark ages. We don't fear Vikings. People like to watch TV shows and movies about them. We don't fear them coming on raids anymore. Why? Because the gospel penetrated their culture and transformed them. There are historical records of cannibalistic tribes. When did they stop being cannibals? It's when they were reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's examples today like you know Jim Elliott and the missionaries that were killed. And then the Alka tribe of these fierce warriors in the Ecuadorian jungles that were reached. There's multiplied examples of that all over the world. The church is civilized, the uncivilized. And then last, think simply, and this is the biggest reason, about changed lives. Now I'll just read you this example and I'll close. In the 19th century, Charles Bradlaugh, a prominent atheist, challenged a Christian man to debate, the, to debate the validity of the claims of Christianity. The Christian was Hugh Price Hughes, who worked among the poor in the slums of London. Uh, Hughes told Bradlaugh he would agree to the, debate on, to the debate on one condition. Hughes said, I propose to you that we each bring some concrete evidences of the validity of our beliefs in the form of men and women who have been redeemed from the lives of sin and shame by the influence of our teaching. I will bring 100 such men and women, and I challenge you to do the same. Hughes then said, if Bradlaugh couldn't bring 100, he could bring 50, and then 20, and then finally he whittled it all the way down to one. And, and so all Bradlaugh had to do was find one person whose life was improved by atheism, and Hughes would bring 100 people improved by Christ, and then they would have the debate. Bradlaugh withdrew and canceled the debate. Live the kingdom, change the world. We're in a battle. 
But Jesus has already won that battle. As we walk with him and live out the kingdom under his kingship, under his lordship. As we live not for our own little empires, but live to build his kingdom through the church and in our lives. And as we take advantage of the opportunities that God puts in front of us. And we reach out to those around us. And we use the gifts and talents and abilities and opportunities that God has given us. He is going to use us to make a difference in the world and then we as Christians and we as a church instead of turning off the world of the gospel become like a parable a forerunner an outpost a picture of the coming kingdom when King Jesus comes back to rule and to reign and to establish his kingdom on the earth that's what we're called to do that's what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven that's what we're all called to do but especially if you're young if you just graduated let this be the motivation and the mission and the purpose and the plan and the blueprint and the guideline for your life. Don't waste it on things that aren't going to last. Get as far upstream as you can. Make as big of a difference in culture as you can. If Jesus is your king, live the kingdom. And if he's not, it's time to trust him and to surrender to him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.